You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. We're going to be in the book of Job this morning. I'm just going to pray over our time, and then I ask that you go ahead and open up to Job chapter 38. Uh, Especially like kids, teens, like if you can read, then you can have a Bible open too. You can be following along. Uh, Engage your brain, listen actively, make these truths your own, Uh, raise your own questions, think about what you need to discuss, what you need to ask mom and dad about in the future. Husbands, wives, be thinking about how we can pull these truths internally into our own hearts and then guide and lead and shape our family with them. All right? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, just pray for your grace during this time. Please speak clearly now to us from your word. Pray what we know not, you would teach us, and who we are not, you would form in us. Do this through the work of your Holy Spirit, and may your Son be made beautiful before our eyes this morning. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be in Job, starting chapter 38, and for most of the morning, we're just simply going to follow the text. While you're turning there, I always cheat with bookmarks. While you're turning there, super, super brief summary of where we've gone. In the first two chapters... The sons of God, these spiritual beings, enter the throne room of God, kind of like reporting for duty. Uh, One of them, the Satan, the accuser, steps forward, and God says, look at my man Job here. He's faithful, he's blameless, he's righteous. Satan accuses that of really only being because God's blessed him, given him good stuff, and he basically challenges God. Actually, if you just took all that away, you'd see that you're not that great. Your people only love you for the things that you can give them, not for you. And so Job undergoes some incredible suffering, losing all of his wealth, all of his family perish, except his wife, and then he himself is physically afflicted. And then in chapter three, cries out in anguish, deep, deep, deep sorrow, and then spends, I think it's like 29 chapters, going back and forth with these three friends about why this happened to him. And for the most part, generally, they're accusing him of, surely you sinned some way, Job, to bring this about. This is your day of reckoning, so to speak, that you brought this upon yourself. And Job proves that's not the case. And then this fourth gentleman shows up named Elihu, who says, that is not the case. But, Job, in your suffering, you have sinned. You have accused God of being silent, not answering you. You've accused him of being unjust. You've accused him of being uncaring. You've accused him of being unable to save, of being powerless. And Job, in these things, you have not been right. And so chapter 37 ends there, and Job doesn't answer. He doesn't have an answer for Elihu. And then finally, the Lord himself shows up in chapter 38. This is what Job has been asking for several times during the speeches. He kind of recognizes that his friends are pretty worthless. They don't have the answers for him that he needs. And he calls out to God, like, I need to present my case to God. If I could stand in his courtroom and present myself to him, I would vindicate myself. I would show that I'm blameless. If all I could do, if I could just get face-to-face with God and sort these things out, and then he could explain to me why this has happened to me. Like, God owes me an answer. I need to know why he has done this to me. And so he's going to get what he wished for, but we have to be careful what we wish for. And so the Lord answers Job, chapter 38, verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, so God shows up not as this, this tame, gentle figure, but as the ultimate symbol of wildness, uncontrolled power, out of a whirlwind, the Lord answers back to Job. Verse 2, 
This is those first words. This is really the purpose of the speech. God's going to give two speeches to Job, and that kind of structures the text we're going to look at today. Here's the purpose of the first speech. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? This is God's accusation against Job. Job, you've darkened my counsel. You've called into question the way that I'm ordering things in the universe, and you've darkened that with words without knowledge. You've said things that you, you didn't even know what you were talking about. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So then he challenges Job, dress for action like a man. I'll question you and you make it known to me, which is actually very interesting. Like we would expect God's going to come and, okay, Job, yep, let me explain myself. No, God reverses it and says, Job, you're going to explain yourself. You're going to explain why you think you can say the things that you've said. Dress for action like a man in the Hebrew, literally like put a belt on, gird up your loins like prepare for battle, right? You might have some like long flowing cloak or something like that that you would wear. But if you're going to be running, wrestling, fighting, engaged in combat, like you got to get that out of the way. And so you kind of like pull that up and and bundle it up somehow with a belt or whatnot. This could even be a reference to an ancient uh, sport called belt wrestling, where the two wrestlers would be belted together and forced to wrestle with one another. And so this is God challenging Job almost to like a wrestling match. He does not come to like politely explain himself to Job. He comes and he actually forces Job, you're going to answer to me. Now, as we read, we're about to jump into verse 4. As we read, you're going to see a lot of rhetorical questions. These are questions that are asked to which you, the audience, and the person being asked, Job, they know the answer to the question. So I'm kind of let you, letting you know what are we about to read. It's going to be a laundry list, like three chapters of rhetorical questions to Job that Job knows the answer. There are going to be questions like, have you ever walked on the bottom of the ocean before? And the answer to all these questions isn't just simply no. That is true. Job is going to answer no to all these. Job doesn't have the power to do this. He doesn't have the knowledge to do this. He has no idea what what God's talking about. The answer is not just no, but no, but you do, God. So the answer is not Job doesn't know the answer. The answer is Job doesn't know, but God does but God does, but God is able. And so I want you to have those answers in your mind as we read through these. I'm going to go fairly quickly for the sake of that. I want you to see the whole forest and not get lost in the trees. You can go back during your own personal study time this week, read through these, kind of think through exactly what's going on here, kind of apply these questions. There's going to be lots of stuff about nature, about natural forces, the ocean, the heavens, the depths, as well as animals. And in all of these, the rhetorical questions also force us and force Job to do the thinking and apply the reasoning to ourselves. They force us to be active in thinking out these truths and what they mean for us. And so even though God's not going to talk about human society hardly at all, he intends for us to think and apply what he's saying about the natural world to our own lives. And he's going to help us do that. Alrighty? So jump in the first first one with me here. Verse 4, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job, were you around when I created everything? And this is kind of an umbrella charge about everything he's dealing with. Job, you have questioned my ability to run the universe, but you weren't even there when I created it. Skip down to verse 8. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment in thick darkness its swaddling band... Notice the words womb and swaddling there. It's treating the sea, this great image of chaos, evil. It's a place like humans can't go there. We, don't, we can't live in the sea. 
and sometimes it throws huge waves on land and destroys everything. Like it's a, treated like a baby by God. I gave, it came forth from the womb and I swallowed it up, my little baby, the ocean. And then I set boundaries for it, the shoreline, and I said, you can't go any further than this. Can you do that, Job? Look down at verse 11. Thus far shall you come and no further. God commands the sea to stay in its place and not come back up and overwhelm the dry land. Job, you can't do that. Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Job, do you command the sun to rise every day without which all life would cease to exist? Your crops would fail, the planet would grow cold and, and we would all just freeze to death. Do you do that, Job? Can you, sorry, verse 13, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It's almost like every day when the sun rises is a judgment on the wicked. Wicked deeds are done in the dark. Darkness is a sign of evil. The light comes up every day reminding that one day light will shine forth and expose all your wicked deeds. Joe, can you do that? Can you expose wickedness on the earth? Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea and walked in the recesses of the deep? Job, have you ever walked on the, on the bottom of the ocean before? Have you been to the depths of the Marianas Trench? Because I have. Have you, Job? We get this picture not only of the sea, but going forward to verse 17, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? That place of death, the underworld, where people go when they die? I created that. I own that. I've been there. Job, can, can do you tell me anything about the underworld? Verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness? Again, these symbols of good and evil. That you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, you were born then and the number of your days is great. Now God's even taunting Job. Like, come on, answer me, tell me. You wanted to stand before me? You wanted to plead your case? Answer me, where is the place of light and dark? Do you know where they're at? Further on down, verse 24 He's almost like a, like you can imagine like a guest or a, a visitor to South Dakota answering, like, can you give me directions to something? Verse 24, what is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Like, um, excuse me, sir, Mr. Job, could you just point the way to the source of light? Job has no answer. Keep moving to verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? These are constellations. So now we've turned our attention away from earth, now to heavenly beings, and think about all the millions of stars in our, soul, in our galaxy, in our universe. There's galaxies upon galaxies in our universe. Tell me about those, Job. Did you set them there and order their courses and their rotations and their circuits and how they travel through heaven and how if you put them in a certain way, they create pictures in the sky that we can tell times and seasons by. And I have perfectly ordered them so that from the perspective of Earth, it looks like a bear or it looks like a hunter. And actually, if you were to go to another planet in another solar system and look over there, you wouldn't get the same picture. Right? Can you order all of those stars in the sky, Job? Can you do that? Verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Here God is like a commander of powers over lightning and rain. Like the, every raindrop asks God, where do you want me? Where should I fall? Every lightning bolt says, where should I strike? Job, do you have that authority over the forces of nature? 
And so in this first section, if you actually pause, verse 39 is really a better, a better start for chapter 39, so I'm pausing right here. The answer to all these questions, Joe has to say, no, I can't do any of that, but you can, God. And so it's like God is saying, Job, you don't know anything. You have darkened my counsel with words without understanding. You, ha- you have no idea how to order the universe. You weren't there when it was created. Every single detail of the cosmos is under my sovereign control and does exactly what I tell it when I tell it to. And so everything I'm ordering for my own purposes, you don't have the wisdom to begin doing that, Job. You can't do it. And now he turns his attention to animals, the animal kingdom. Look at verse 39 of chapter 8. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Verse 41, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? There's something beautiful and terrifying about predator-prey relationships. Like think about the, the muscle, the strength, the majesty of a lion. Right? That's glorious and beautiful almost. And also terrifying when on something like Animal Planet or whatever, you watch it like chase down the gazelle and like jump on it and crush its neck and devour it. Like you're simultaneously in awe at the power there and the beauty. And God's saying like, I do that. Every lion's dinner, like I serve it up for them. Job, can you wake up this morning and make sure every bird in the Black Hills gets its breakfast? I do that. Verse one of chapter 39 now. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you count the number of the months that they are full, that they fulfill, sorry? And this section here has a lots of time stamps here. Now it's turning towards the cycles of life. Do you know when all those things happen? Have you ordered them rightly so that they continue from season to season to season? We could also think of things like mating seasons, great migration seasons that the monarch butterfly does maybe across continents, right? Or blue whales moving through the ocean from the Arctic down to Hawaii and whatnot. We could think of the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. Job, do you have any understanding of how that works? Look at verse 5, chapter 39. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Job, when you see something as free and wild as the wild donkey, like, there's a beautiful freedom there, like totally untouched by humanity, He's not human slave. He's not carrying around baggage or pulling carts or whatever. Little donkey wandering out in the desert in the fl- salt flats. We've, I've seen these in Nevada from uh, like donkeys that maybe got loose during the mining days or whatever. They live just like in the middle of nowhere. Job, do you know where they're all at? Are you watching over them? Are you taking care of them? We could think of the great vast expanse of, Colorado, uh, of South Dakota, right? In the Great Plains. Like every prairie dog colony. Every rattlesnake, every hawk, every coyote, God knows exactly where they are and what they're doing today. Job, do you have any knowledge there? Now, verse 9, he turns his attention to the wild ox. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night in your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys for you? Think of something as powerful and dangerous as a giant wild ox. And uh, there's actually a species of ox called the oryx that was alive during the time up to Julius Caesar. They've since died out, but they're kind of like an ice age type of ox. It's just absolutely enormous, bigger than anything today. 
Like, Job, could you go put ropes on that thing and make it do your bidding? Can you harness the dangerous, powerful forces of the world to do what you want? No. Job, you can't. Looking down at verses 13 to 17, it's about the ostrich. Verse 14, she leaves her eggs to the earth. Verse 15, forgetting that a foot may crush them, that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Verse 17, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in the understanding. When you see something just totally weird in creation or that seems foolish or stupid, I did that, Job. I took away the ostrich's wisdom. I made it a fool and a terrible mother. And you can't explain that. You don't know why I did that. You can't explain the weirdness about creation. Then finally, the, the war horse in verse 19. You can think, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you can think of the, the charge of the Rohirrim or something like that, the battle of Pelennor Fields, right? Just that's the image I've got in my head. So good. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. There's this terrifying aspect to horses. They're so much bigger than we are. And they love battle. This war horse is ready to do what it was made for, what it was trained for, to charge into the fray and bring death to whoever's enemies. Job, can you understand that? Can you even begin to create a creature look like that? Can you harness those kinds of horses for your own ends? I don't think so. Finally, verse 26, talking about birds. Is it by your understanding, your wisdom, Job, that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? I want you to think about how long it took human beings to figure out how to fly. How long it took before, what is it, brothers? The Wright brothers, right, designed that first aircraft and were able to launch and, and fly. And for thousands of years before that, God had creatures all over the world. It's like the most successful species in the animal kingdom, birds, on every continent, flying. Like, can you explain that? Did you design avian flight, Job? You have no idea how these things get this bird, sometimes giant birds like an albatross or an eagle, gets up into the sky, hundreds of feet into the sky, Job. Can you explain that? And so, in verse 40, the Lord says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And that's the conclusion to the first speech. In summary, Job, you don't know anything about how the world works. So how can you stand before me and judge the way that I've ordered things when you couldn't even begin to fathom what I'm doing in your life through your suffering? John Piper puts it this way, when a man sees a work of God like suffering, he should remember that it has connections to 10,000 realities he does not know. God is doing 10,000 things in your life right now. Excuse me, in your life at that, this moment. When you suffer or your loved one suffers, you see one or two or three things, maybe 10. You don't see millions of things flowing into it and millions of things flowing out of it. We don't have the wisdom to understand, let alone judge God's ordering of our lives. And so in chapter 40, 
Verse 2, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, but I will not answer. Twice, but I'll proceed no further. Amazingly and soberingly, to the man whose wealth God has confiscated, whose family God has taken away, whose greatness God has removed, and whose health God has ruined, God says in summary, I've made no mistake. I know exactly what I'm doing in your life and in every detail of the government of the world. My counsel is perfect. I've got nothing wrong. That was from commentator Christopher Ash. And so Job puts his hand on his mouth. He says, I can't give counsel to the word to the Lord. He says he'll stop speaking, but he's not quite humbled. He's sobered, but he's not humbled yet. He has not actually repented of the things he said about the Lord. He has not acknowledged God's wise counsel. Job's only been sobered up, realizing, whoa, I just went too far. I'll stop here. And God's not satisfied with that. He's going to bring Job a little lower still. You can look now at verses 40, verse 6 through 8. <clears throat> God doesn't relent. He keeps going. You almost feel bad for Job. Like after that scathing rebuke, you'd be done. But God's like, nope, let's keep at it, Job. He charges him again. The Lord answers Job out of the world when dressed for action like a man. I'll question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? So now the purpose of the first speech was, Job, you don't have my wisdom or my counsel. And you've darkened, you've called into question my decisions thinking you were wiser than I. Now, Job, you've also called me out for being unjust, that I take away people's rights, that I don't care about the innocent, and I don't care about punishing the wicked. Are you going to condemn me as evil, Job? As morally circumspect? We've got to keep going, Job. And then in verse 9, have you an arm like God? This is going to be the, the, the theme throughout the entire second speech. Do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with, like a, with a voice like his? The arm, the word arm often gets just used for the word for strength. Do you have the might? Do you have the power that God has, Job? This is not God saying, I'm bigger and tougher than you, Job, and so you need to be quiet or I'll beat you up. This is God saying, you've, caused, you've called into question my justice and my ability to serve justice, but can you do the same? Can you step into the courtroom as judge and we're going to see divine warrior and wage war on the wicked and the, and the unjust and bring about justice, Job? Do you have an arm that can save you? And so now we get into it. He says, okay, if you're going to do this, you're going to, you're going to take my hat. You're going to do my job. Verse 10, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. You got to dress the part. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked that they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. This is the issue in question. Okay, Job, you're going to call into question my justice in governing the universe? Could you do it? Can you look on everyone who's proud and shove their faces in the dust and humble them, even cast them down into the world below in just punishment? I don't think so, Job. I don't think you have that power. And so the key theme of this second speech is defense of God's justice and his control, not just over nature, but now it's going to shift to even forces of evil. 
wicked people, and as we're going to see, I think, wicked monsters. Verse 19, he says, behold, behemoth. In verse 1, sorry, verse, yeah, 1 of 41, he says, can you draw out Leviathan, behemoth and Leviathan? The identity of these two creatures isn't necessarily immediately obvious, at least to most commentators from the passage. Before we read them, I want to kind of lay out what I think they, they are, so that as we read through here, we can see exactly what God's doing. Some believe that behemoth is maybe like a hippo, and based on the description, some of, some of that's going to fit, and that Leviathan is a crocodile. And again, some of the description is going to fit, but some of it's not. Others have said that they're a sauropod dinosaur and a plesiosaur, these great extinct beasts. I also think that that's unlikely. The reason is these, these beasts are going to be portrayed as being like almost invincible, absolutely terrifying, cosmically horrifying. And like, Job, you have absolutely no power over these things. You can totally kill a crocodile. I actually wondered this when I was doing some sermon prep, so I just YouTubed crocodile hunting. And there's this like crocodile laying on the bank, and this guy like walks up and shoots it with an arrow. And it's like, Rah! and starts to swim away, and he shoots it with another arrow. And then they string it up in a tree to like, have the guys chop it up you know, and eat it, I guess, whatever. So crocodile wasn't really that impressive in my mind. Crocodiles don't, also don't breathe fire or lives in the depths of the sea, which is how Leviathan is going to be described. So those are some things that don't fit. And it also begs the question, why are these even included in the second speech? These, if you're just going to explain the power and might of hippos and crocodiles, why didn't you mention that in the first speech when you were talking about lions and ravens and war horses and things like that? Why would you bring up these beasts again in round two if they're not advancing this purpose of God, defending God's justice in a world that has evil, wicked, proud things? So I think a much better interpretation is that these are supernatural chaos beasts, all right? Behemoth is a little more difficult. The word behema is like the standard word for cows or cattle. And so behemoth, behemoth is like an intensive plural, it's, it'd be a really good way to read it. It's just like a super beast, right? So verse 15 would be, behold the super beast. And in Mesopotamia, in the ancient Near East, which is where Job is from, there was this legend, very, very popular, it's one of the oldest stories on earth, of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. And in that story, the gods get angry at Gilgamesh. I'm sparing you a lot of details. And they send this giant thing called the bull of heaven down to do battle with Gilgamesh. And he ends up wrestling it with his buddy Enkidu, and he like rips off its leg, and he throws it at one of the gods, and she gets angry at him, blah, blah, blah. But they had this idea that there was this giant, fearsome bull creature that the gods could send down and like terrify and destroy human beings, and they're afraid they're, it's going to eat up all the grain and cause famine and things like that. They also had stories of this creature called Leviathan, which was this terrifying demon, mega-death, chaos dragon thing that lived in the depths of the ocean and threatened to overwhelm all that's good and human life on the planet, right? For ancient people, the sea is terrifying. It's really, really dangerous. Hopefully, it's still terrifying to you today. It's so powerful, creepy things like giant squids live down there. And so this dragon, Leviathan, was a picture of cosmic chaos and evil that in both the Babylonian and the Canaanite mythology, the gods had to go destroy it in order to create creation out of it or to save creation from this chaos dragon. But we don't even have to go to Canaanite and Babylonian mythology to understand who Leviathan is. Back in chapter 3 of Job, Job has already brought up Leviathan, and he has, I think, told us who Leviathan is. 
in verse, chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dark dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. He's talking about the day of his birth. The whole chapter is about him cursing the day of his birth and wishing this cosmic deconstruction language. Like, I, bet, I wish the whole day could just be undone, like that it didn't exist. And so it makes a lot of sense. These, these sorcerers or these priests who are calling on Leviathan to come destroy humanity, would they rouse him up to bring darkness back over that day that I was born? Leviathan is mentioned three other times in your Bible. In Isaiah 27, verse 1, talking about the day of the Lord, the day of God's final judgment and reckoning, it says, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In Psalm 104, verses 24 to 26, you actually get this kind of comical picture of Leviathan. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. All the earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. And there goes the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. It's kind of a a funny sense. God is so much greater than this creature he created to just play in his ocean like a child throwing a rubber ducky into its bathtub. And finally, Psalm 74, verses 12 to 14, is talking about God delivering his people from Egypt and leading them through the Red Sea. And it's not just that God parted the waters and led them through, but it's going to use this language that there was actually like evil, chaotic, demonic spiritual forces at work in Egypt to prevent God's people from being let go and enslaved. And that when God split the Red Sea, he was also making war on Egypt's gods, or demonic spiritual forces. Psalm 74, verse 12, Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures in the wilderness. So you see there the imagery of God, this cosmic divine warrior, waging war against the true forces of evil behind Israel's enslavement. And Leviathan having multiple heads, which is exactly how he's described in Canaanite mythology is this like seven-headed hydra dragon beast thing. So I think Leviathan is totally this chaos dragon monster demonic creature spiritual being. If you think it's a crocodile, that's fine. You be the judge. But bottom line is Leviathan is interpreting Leviathan as Leviathan is just a simpler explanation. If you think Leviathan's not Leviathan, you need to ask Job why he said Leviathan. So here we go. Now that you kind of have this picture in front of you, again, I'm contending that this is not a hippo and a crocodile, that these are terrifying mythological creatures representing all the cosmic powers of evil and chaos and darkness in the world. As you read that, keep that in mind and picture God as a divine warrior, right? What's in question right now is his justice, his ability, his power to deliver, to save, and to punish the wicked. And so what could be more appropriate than to hold up these two images of cosmic evil and explain, Job, you have no control over these, but I do. So let's read it now. Verse 15 of chapter 40. Behold behemoth, or super beast, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. That's a euphemism. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God, like the most impressive of God's creatures. 
Let him who made him bring near his sword. So Job, go ahead and vanquish this creature. Can you do that? From, for the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he's not frightened. He is confident though the Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his snows with a snare? Job, can you go and like hunt this creature down and capture it? No, it would eat you alive. Now behold, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you with soft words? Right? Imagine Leviathan pleading with God like, oh, please don't hurt me. Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Right? God is asking Job, can you do this? Can you take this spiritual being of incredible power and cosmic terror and evil and make it your pet and put a leash on it for your little girls, Job? Are you able to do that? Verse 6, will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? He's invincible, Job. Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle? You won't do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Job, I don't owe you anything. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Right? If you can't stand up to Leviathan, Job, how then can you stand in judgment of me and my actions in this world? How can you do my job any better than me, Job? This thing is my pet. I own it. I control it. It does anything I tell it to. It is not a threat to me. It can do nothing that I don't allow it to. Yet, Job, you would terrified by it. You would run away. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even try to go up against this beast. Verse 12, I will not keep silent concerning his limbs. We thought God was done. No, 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 actually, I want to keep praising this creature because the more I make this thing look good, I will look far, far better. I will not keep silent concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Think of like his scales, his armor. Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth in terror? You can't control him, Job. His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. Job, you can't touch this thing. You can't defeat him. His sneezings flash forth light. In his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot in burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. You would be utterly destroyed. You'd be burned up. This thing would breathe fire on you, Job, and wipe you out in a second. Verse 23, the folds of his flesh stick together. Again, he's invincible. Firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone. Hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty, or the better translation is the gods. The gods are afraid of this thing, Job. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail. 
nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. He's absolutely invincible to human attack. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like the sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He's totally invincible. He makes his deep bo- the deep boil like a pot, right? Think of a, some giant sea creature, like whales when they like, you know, birth to like grab something or whatever, and they come smashing down on the surface and just like the water's bubbling and boiling and things like that. That's the picture now. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like a creature without fear. So he comes, he shows up, absolutely destroys everybody, and then leaves the shimmering sea bubbling in his wake as he descends back down into his lair. Verse 34, he sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Again, Job's central cons- God's central concern is to defend his justice and power against forces that are way beyond our control. Forces of evil, demonic forces, forces of chaos. And Job has questioned God's justice. Can you step in and save them? And God's response is, yeah, do you have an arm like me? Can you stand up to Leviathan, Job? Can your right arm save you? And so, God here shows us this incredible, powerful creature. This is the longest description of anything in the Bible, any animal or human. Nothing gets as much airtime in the Bible as Leviathan. This is like really, really weird for Hebrew literature, actually, to have this detailed of a poetic description of something. God is showing us like this thing is so incredible, and it's my pet. I put a leash on it. It's mine. I control it. And so in summary, Job, you can't bring, you can't even begin to bring justice on the wicked and salvation for my people. Do you have an arm like me? Can you humble and abase the proud and defeat the forces of evil? And then Job answered, look at chapter 42 now, this is the end of the second speech. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And then no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now he's going to quote God's charges back to him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That was me. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Job replies, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now, now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Romans 11 Verses 33 to 35, Paul quotes some of the sections we just read. We see now Job has been totally humbled. And Paul cites what we just read, sections of it. And he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You can't judge God. You can't find fault with God. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? You can't teach God anything. You can't correct his wisdom. Paul says, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? God doesn't owe you anything. You can't put him in your debt. Job, those children I took from you, they belong to me. Your flocks, your fields, those were mine. I gave those to you. Your health, your very life, 
is in my hands. It was a gift from me. And when I decided to take them away, I didn't put myself in your debt. I don't owe you anything. Those were gracious gifts. And they were mine to do with as I please. Paul could have also added, who has an arm like Yahweh that they might save God's people and destroy the wicked? No one. No one has the power or the wisdom to govern the universe like God can. And so like Job, we must be silent and put our hands on our mouths. Job says at the end there, chapter 42, verse 6, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's actually sinful to be angry at God or to question his justice. It's a sin that we need to repent of. But to accuse God of doing you wrong is to question his goodness, his wisdom, his power. To accuse him of being unjust or uncaring or unable to help is wrong. It's okay to honestly ask why. It's okay to honestly ask why about our circumstances. Why are you doing this? What's going on? What's your purpose in this? It's not okay to demand that God justify himself to you, like Job has. It's not okay to grumble or to criticize. In their own very nature, to grumble or criticize against somebody is to accuse that they've wronged you or they've done something wrong. And so some of us might have some repenting to do this morning or this week. We might even bring it up or confess it in our small groups, times when we've accused God and demanded that he answer to us. Job also says, love this line, absolutely love it. In verse five, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Do you have an arm like God? Right, this is the picture that we got painted. Job had heard about God, but God showed up and showed himself to Job in his power over creation and cosmic forces. Have you an arm like God? Can you take on terrifying forces of cosmic evil and death? Better yet, can you put a leash on them and make them your pet? No, you're not fit to take God's place as judge and savior. There's this imagery of the divine warrior, of God bringing his sword near behemoth to put him down, of God putting a leash, putting bounds on Leviathan and making him do his will. You don't actually need God answer why to your circumstances and suffering. That's what Job had wanted to know. Why did you do this to me? Instead, God answered with a bunch of rhetorical questions to show Job that he was treading into places he didn't deserve. It was merciful and gracious for Job to even answer to be, or God to answer to begin with. God's solution to Job's suffering was to reveal himself. I'd heard of you, but now I see you. God did not tell Job why the things that happened to him happened to him. God instead, his medicine for Job was to just show himself in all of his power to Job. And that's what we need. We need to see God. We need to see the cosmic judge who can crush your enemies and bury them in the dust. You need to see the divine warrior cleaving the head of the dragon in two with his sword of justice. You need to behold the rider on the white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth to strike down your enemies. With the armies of heaven at his back, you don't need, though you might get it, you don't need the answer why because you couldn't understand it. You probably wouldn't even be satisfied with the answer. You might not even accept it. What you need is to, like Job, you need to see God. You need to behold the glory of the Lord. So there's another picture from the scriptures that I wanna show you this morning. It's from Revelation chapter 19. And here's the context. Christians are being persecuted and killed by the Roman Empire under Emperor Nero. 
And this is the vision that Jesus gives to John to encourage them in their suffering. So Christians are suffering horribly, terribly. Their churches are being destroyed and people are being put to death or fed to lions. And Jesus says, what do my people need right now in their suffering? They don't need me to tell them why I'm letting this happen. They need to see me, right? When you see your church looted and destroyed, when you see your small group leader tied to a post, covered in pitch, and then burned alive at one of Nero's dinner parties, when you see the apostles Paul and Peter executed as enemies of the Roman state, when your husband or wife, your mom or dad, are dragged off by soldiers to be fed to lions, what, do you, what does your soul need right then and there? You need this picture in your mind. This is Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on them no, no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, from which his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When we suffer, when we suffer severely, as these Christians were, God says, actually, what, you, what your soul needs is this picture in your mind. That's what will get you through. Not my answer to your why, but this picture of Jesus himself. And it gets even more beautiful. Hopefully you can see the connections to our passage here. In chapter 20, verses 1 to 5, if you ever fear that God doesn't have control over cosmic forces, that he's not powerful enough to right your wrongs or save your bacon, he says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, I think Leviathan, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That's the picture we're meant to see. When we see people burning at the stake, when we see the cancer diagnosis, when we see the casket going into the ground, what we need to see beyond those is this picture of Christ who reigns, who is the divine warrior fighting on our behalf. That's what we really need. The same God who feeds the ravens and lions, who directs the stars in their courses, who sets the limit of the oceans, who can pierce Leviathan and bind him with a chain in the abyss, is the same God who became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He calmed the raging sea with his 12 disciples freaking out in a boat. He raised a man who'd been dead for three days back to life. He cast an entire legion of demons into 2,000 pigs and sent them over a cliff into the abyss. And then he descended into the heart of the earth to crush the head of the dragon in its own lair. The God-man now holds the keys to death in Hades and governs the entire world enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. You don't have the right to question his wisdom and governance, and plans for your life. But you don't need to question his wisdom or governing over the universe. He conquered sin, death, and the devil for you. You can trust him. So just end our time with this encouragement from James chapter 5, which we would have read last winter, last fall. Be patient, therefore, brothers, 
until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father God, Job had spoken of things he did not understand. No doubt many of us, probably all of us, have questioned you with the big things or the small things of our life. Things truly terrible, things only evil in our imagination, but no matter. Like Job, we put our hands on our mouth and repent in dust and ashes of questioning your goodness, questioning your justice, questioning your ability to save, doubting whether you actually care or love us. Father, drive those thoughts from our minds and from our hearts. Instead, fill our minds with the picture of Christ our Lord on the cross and on the horse coming to deliver us from our true enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Pray that you do that this morning through our final song, through the Lord's Supper, as Christ himself is presented before us through the elements of bread and wine. That your victory over sin, death, and the devil happened through death. Oh Lord, how inscrutable are your judgments. How inscrutable are your ways. Teach us. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.